Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Directions Mag roundtable discussion. Today, we are going to talk about moving your higher ed instruction online in a hurry because of the interesting world that we are living in currently. Um, we are all thinking about how to make that happen. So today, we're going to talk through a few topics um, to maybe ease your pain and let you know that you are not alone in this. So looking at communication, hoping that you won't reinvent the wheel, some tech considerations, resources, and tips and tricks. So I am Barbara Duke, Managing Editor here at Directions Mag, and um, I have selfishly gathered together all my favorite people from around the country who are working in different capacities. So um, let's meet our talented panel. We have Joseph Kursky, who is education manager at Esri. He also uh, does some work at the University of Denver and many other endeavors. We're glad to have you, Joseph, welcome. Greetings, thanks. Thanks for having me. We have Stace Maples, he's a geospatial manager at the Stanford Geospatial Center and um, a really talented guy when it comes to coming up with cool solutions and interesting things related to geospatial technology. We have Great Miriam. to be here, thanks for having yeah. me. Oh yay, I'm so excited to have you. So we also have Miriam Olivares, she is the GIS librarian at Yale and previously was at uh, Texas A&M and brings um, some wonderful resources to us and um, a wonderful collaborative spirit. Miriam, welcome. Thank you, thank you for having me. Also, Rich Schultz is joining us. He's the Associate Director and Co-PI for the Geotech Center, the National Geospatial Technology Center of Excellence. Um, they have been great partners with us in doing webinars and um, being informative for the geospatial community. Uh, so welcome, Rich. We are glad to have you with us today. Honored to be with such a uh, esteemed panel of experts here today. And finally, we have Shannon White. She is the GIS Certificate Coordinator at William & Mary and has an abundance of experience in working in online environments and with uh, faculty to solve interesting problems. So welcome to Thank our you. entire panel. <laughs> We're just going to be a little casual today and talk through these topics. Um, so Rich, I'd like to start with you to talk about communication and an online presence. Um, obviously, everyone is moving to that. What are virtual options that are manageable and, and things that maybe uh, don't take uh, a lot of uptake? Yeah, Barbara, I, I've been teaching online since 1997, so maybe I'm one of the, the pioneers of doing this. Um, but along the way, I've learned a lot of things, mostly by making mistakes first. Uh, but being able to be there online and have that online presence so that the students know that there's a real person behind that computer screen as opposed to uh, something that just seems mechanical. It gives them a sense of comfort. It gives them a sense that they have someone to go to with resources and so forth and that they can ask questions. 
it takes students a little bit of time to get used to those types of things sometimes if they haven't taken an online course before. So it's important that we as educators are there for them. I like to think of empathy. Uh, students are new to this, as are lots of educators. And we all just need to sort of take a deep breath and say, okay, we're here in this situation. Let's do this together. So what I like to do is I like to have a lot of video announcements, short, informal, nothing fancy, but again, it lets those students know that there's a face behind the screen. Little short videos for content, nothing past several minutes. We don't wanna get into the lecture 50 minutes that's online. Students aren't gonna take the time to watch all that anyway, so just a few minutes, focused content. Discussion boards are great if the faculty members participate and again, show their online presence. There's a tool out there that I like, it's called VoiceThread, and it allows ongoing discussions to be captured in a myriad of different sorts of ways. Uh, students can call in or videos or uh, a number of ways they can even just type in. And it records those in order so you can see the conversation happening and the students can play that back. So that's a nice tool too. Uh, group, individual emails, of course. Phone calls maybe as appropriate, how those go. I think everybody's just about webinared out right now, but if you can have some of those synchronous meetings and show your presence again, I think that's real important. Being able to be open for virtual office hours also is critical because the students are gonna need that. They're gonna need that help knowing again that they're speaking with a human being. And any way that students can have sort of a direct, preferably live contact conversation with the faculty member, I think is really important. Um, just a couple other points along the lines of communication and online presence and teaching online. I like to use canned responses to questions because I think that provides for consistency so that everybody gets the exact same answer in the same wording which is something that we actually cannot do in a classroom when we're speaking orally. Um, using a script when you record a little video keeps you on track. And also a little trick there too, is once you have a script, you can use that script for ADA requirements and at least have a transcript for something too, you know, how that works uh, to keep uh, in line with the federal regulations for ADA. So uh, one of our other colleagues here, Miriam, will talk about not reinventing the wheel, but keep it simple. There are lots of resources out, out there already. Joseph is gonna talk about that. I like to make things available with just something very simple, a simple Google Drive with folders and subfolders and organized so students can get to it very quickly. This isn't a time to get fancy. We just wanna get the information out there, stick with the basics, Make sure you uh, adhere to your learning outcomes. And I think um, three words, empathy, empathy, and empathy to all of our students. Yeah. So that's a start anyway, Barbara. Yeah, thanks, Rich. Anybody have anything else to add about uh, communication, maybe from your experience? Hey, Rich, I have a question for you. Um, how do you balance your students' um, 
requests to kind of be in contact with you at all hours, how do you tell them when you will be available and when you won't be available? I set the guidelines up front, Shannon. Uh, we all need a little bit of rest. And so I tell them, here's when I'm gonna be on, here's when I'm gonna have my virtual office hours. Uh, they're going to send emails and things like that because that's just a sort of a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, I've got a question, I'll send an email. But we still have to, to let our students know that uh, there's a time frame for things. And I think we all need a little bit of a break too. We can't go 24 seven with everything. So setting those expectations up at the very beginning, I think is really critical. Thanks. I think there's a lot of instructors like myself that are, are going through this transition. And I'm lucky enough to have a background in instructional technology, but um, I'm hearing from a lot of colleagues that, you know, how do I step away from the computer this week and then next week and then the week after, and how do I manage that? So I like that advice. Yeah, and just telling your students that up front too. Hey, I'm gonna step away this week. I'm still reachable by these particular uh, methods of, of communication, but here's my plan for the next week. I, I would even do that in a quick video. So you come off as very genuine and uh, very comforting to the students. We don't wanna come off as demanding or anything like that. We, we really wanna make sure that the communication is open there and that we, um, give them something up front, you know, before we do it. Rich, one of the strategies that we've been uh, using at, at Stanford is to, is to create a community where students can, can help assist with, the, uh, with supporting each other. And we found Slack uh, uh, to be a really effective way of, um, of creating those communities. One of the first things we did when, uh, when uh, Stanford started pulling back and sending students home and talking about moving to online is establish a Slack channel for the Stanford Geospatial Center and, and, uh, and put that out there for folks to sign up and be able to share resources, answer each other's questions. Um, we have a listserv and, and I've always hoped that that would serve that sort of purpose, but I find listservs, uh, um, the folks who sign up for listserv tend to be hesitant to post to listservs for some reason these days. Um, and, uh, and so the Slack channel seems to be much, uh, a much more active venue for, for community support uh, um, uh, within, the, within the university GIS user community. I would agree with that totally, Stace. Uh, use Slack in a, in a number of different situations. It creates that learning community that we really want our students to be part of. And there's a feature on Slack also that you can set it up so that if you're not on Slack all the time, when somebody makes a comment or shares something, you automatically get an email. And then if you happen to be carrying around your phone and you get the email, you know how they're participating too. And I think that's a great way to encourage others too. Students will start seeing that there's lots of participation in there and they'll want to chime in too. Yeah, I would like to add, this is Miriam, um, what I have seen in, in regular times, not, not now that everybody's at home, I don't know if that pattern will change, but definitely Friday night and Sunday surprisingly are super busy with activity on 
on uh, any kind of a web uh, stats that you can get. So I try to find time to help students during Fridays to make sure that over the weekend they will have the answers so they can devote their time for projects, which is when they can catch up. And Sunday, because they start, I guess, panicking that Monday and Tuesday, there's some deadlines. So I've seen that um, they are very responsive um, and I just go a little bit out of my, my schedule just to make sure that they have the answers so they can continue working. That's a great example, Miriam, of just communicating with your students and letting them know what's happening. Um, over communicate is the way that we always do it online because you, you can't have too much communication for the students letting them know what's happening. Excellent. Great suggestions, everyone. Um, <clears throat> All right. Hey, just one more, uh, this is Joseph, one more yeah. note here is that many of these learning management systems allow announcements to be staggered. So touching on what Rich was saying, posting these short announcements throughout the course, I oftentimes actually set many of them up ahead of time and stagger them so that they're not getting deluged in week one of the semester or quarter, but they're getting this sort of trickle of pertinent resources and, and uh, announcements during the course of the, of the semester or quarter. That's it. Thanks. Joseph well, brings up a great point in not only staggering those, but not overwhelming the students. Uh, a general rule of thumb is two uh, video announcements per week. If you want to say something after that, maybe just type something out and send it out to the students or just a, a typed announcement, but just enough so that you're, you're keeping in touch with the students and showing that online presence, but not overdoing it. And I want you to note that for some of the students uh, that I've talked to this week, um, we resume classes next week. And one of the things that I'm hearing is they'd like more consistency. They've got multiple classes and having different faculty members ask for different technologies to be used and being respectful of their, their need to manage all of that on their end, um, mm -hmm. whether it's Zoom conference calls, Slack, um, their regular Blackboard or Canvas or whatever learning management system you're using, um, that that they don't want to be overwhelmed with a lot of new technologies. And so maybe asking them, you know, would you like me to set up a Slack? And for some folks that are out there, this is a new learning environment for them as, as faculty. And, you know, I, I just want to say, don't feel pressured as a faculty member to use new technology. Um, you know, this is this is a time in which we're we're dealing with very different circumstances. And do you have to learn something new um, or can you use the existing tools and maybe dig a little deeper into what your university offers uh, within your learning management system? I know most universities have a, a learning and teaching or e-learning and teaching group, and I'm sure they've been supporting online. Uh, I know our folks have this week, they've been doing webinars, they've been doing a lot of different things. But um, 
but just keeping in mind, you know, if you're having to manage the technology, they're having to manage the technology and they're doing it across multiple classes. Such great information, guys. Thank you so much. We we're talking about resources and, and folks not getting too stressed out. So Miriam, maybe you could start the conversation on if we don't reinvent the wheel um, and we're in a hurry, you know, what are some ways that we can tweak existing resources? Sure, this this topic actually I I really like it because I truly believe that it's easy uh, to take advantage of what is out there. Um, I learned that when um, I was a grad student and then all of a sudden I became the person supporting GIS services at um, Texas A&M. Um, we established that from zero and that why I'm saying this is because mostly without a lot of resources or even uh, budget, we were able to establish a very, very effective system. And I wanna share this um, because it can be applied to any group, um, a small or big. Um, so one of the secrets of the GIS libraries uh, success and why the GIS libraries have been established um, all across the country is because um, uh, they do a tremendous job closing the gaps in GIS education. So this is the time for faculty members if they haven't reached out um, to start thinking, how can I partner with my libraries? And if the library does not have the resources at this very moment because of the situation, then start thinking, who are your students who took the class with you that might be able to help and what Stace was talking about, about helping each other? That is the main thing. So um, there's a lot of uh, resources out there, but it's easier for a person who has more experience and has been exposed to those resources to be less overwhelmed and finding the answer. Uh, once you start doing that, you become so good at it that people think that you're an expert. It's no, it's just you just spend a few more hours than the other person doing the same thing. So um, I'm gonna say, couple of things that I think that you could do um, to start thinking how can I support uh, get support for my class at this time that is becoming very difficult because I need to juggle with Zoom meetings, teaching and learning all these new technologies. So uh, keep in mind that you need to know what what are you missing and make your list and then start thinking who can help us with that. Um, is the library there or perhaps the IT department or as I said, some grad students or undergrad students who are more versed than GIS that could help with this. Um, then uh, don't think that you need to have a catalog of data sets or perhaps your uh, university hasn't purchased databases, etc. Most of the work that we do do not require vendors data. Um, we all in the GIS world know where the data is, but um, just find out which guides are uh, extensive and where you can uh, direct your students to get the data so you don't need to be working with them one-to-one, -one, but just in general, start sharing resources if you are using Canvas or other kind of 
learning platforms. Um, there's tons of GIS library guides. If it's not in your university, just start looking around and you'll find treasures where you can just uh, um, point your students to, to go there. Um, now, um, another thing is like the how-to. You could start creating videos. Um, I have done that many times, like for FAQs, instead of having consultations all the time, we produce videos and that will reduce the, the workload. But right now, I don't think you have time to start doing a lot of production for videos, but guess what? There's a lot of forums, YouTube videos, like the ones that Joseph Kersky have. Um, you can um, check what, um, lessons are available and you will find lots of resources and again do not do things that are already out there and they are very effective and would be wonderful resources to help with your teaching um, so for the support uh, services as i said you don't need a big budget you just need uh, an idea and start thinking who can help you and i will give you a secret Librarians need a special projects to go for tenure or for their promotions. So reach out to your librarians, even if they haven't reached out to you. And most likely they would be grateful that you are asking to be part of your class. Those are some of the ideas that come to mind. Um, I, I would be more than happy to share specifically how I run the support services at Yale. A um, couple of things that I do is I do work by appointment mostly because students and researchers are extremely busy and I don't like them to come to me and then I said, oh, guess what? I don't know, but let me find out. So what I have established is, is a little um, questionnaire that you fill out before you come to us and now we know what you want and what you need and most likely will be ready and i would say 95 percent of the time people walk away with the answer or with the solution and that saves time for everyone and the second thing that i have is that we have a ticketing system where you submit your question and then even if it takes three days or a week we just keep back and forth with you, but we have that control that a ticket is still open and someone needs to tackle that ticket. So Wonderful. that is what I want to share now. <laughs> Thanks, Miriam. Mm -hmm. uh, Joseph, I think you had some things to share as well. Greetings. Well, I wanted to say, first of all, following Miriam is a, is is a daunting task she is one of my favorite people in all of geospatial technology and and the another fascinating development to me in the world of geospatial education is that i visit about 30 to 40 campuses a year obviously until a couple weeks ago but uh, when i was doing that um and hopefully it'll resume soon but uh, i have noticed it's not a groundswell but it there are more and more of these geospatial trained librarians on campuses now sure it takes funding and support and as as miriam i'm i know is well aware that's not a position that is oftentimes viewed as 
hey, this is an investment in the future. But where it's happened in places like where Stace and Miriam are and elsewhere, it's been so grand because they are so much into let's tear down tear down this wall. Let's break down the walls between departments, right, folks? And let's and they're all about information and access and helping students and faculty. Uh, so anyway, the point is, I would just encourage anyone listening to this that if you don't have a geospatial hub or a librarian uh, that is focused on uh, GIS and remote sensing, et cetera, advocate for one. Um, it, it may be multiple years before you get one, but it is, again, a wonderful development in geospatial education. I just wanted to say that. Okay, now in terms of uh, resources, yes, I do have some things to share, but I'm, I'm, I'll wait till the to the resource section, if that's okay, Barbary. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, I wanted to say that about the librarians. Rock on. <laughs> Libraries Thank are you, awesome. Thank you, Joseph. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, I've always created uh, our materials, uh, our workshop materials to be self-paced as well. We've always tried to, to create as many opportunities for people to uh, provide themselves with instruction as well as our, our um, instructor-led uh, workshops. And so most of our workshops are designed specifically to, to be uh, used in a self-paced way. And what I've been doing over the last week is is going through those materials that we that we deliver on a re on a regular basis and uh, and trying to chunk those, you know, some of those are three hour workshops, trying to chunk those into smaller, more digestible pieces um, uh, into yeah. into sort of um, maybe like a ta task-based tutorials that I can then piece together into uh, playlists. So we're uh, we're actually, mm -hmm. you know, they they just announced last night that that we're going to an all online uh, um, uh, campus for the spring quarter. Um, so, so the last quarter of our year is going to be entirely online instruction. So we're going to have to produce. Um, the workshops and materials that we create uh, in a in a video format in an online format and so so now the task is to is is to try to take things that um, that make sense for for in person um, a three hour workshop where you can take breaks where you can have you know sort of side conversations you know it's it's very easy to break up the monotony of a workshop when you're in person um, you know there's always great GIS jokes to insert into things but it's much it's much more difficult to do that in a video context because you don't have that personal connection you're not actually there with the person that you're that you're engaging in the instruction and so. Um, and so the challenge for me right now is is transforming our in-person instruction program, which is really successful. And we run we run workshops on a on a uh, weekly basis. We probably run close to 100 workshops a year um, at the Stanford Geospatial Center. And now transforming that to an online format that's our big challenge right now um, is is taking that material and and reformatting it so that it can be digested in a way that's friendly you know, over over the internet and, and in the context that people are now having to work. And and that transition, I know this, many of these topics are gonna, gonna bleed into each other um, for today's roundtable, but um, keeping it simple, we made a decision, um, they called our semester partially, and then um, yesterday we learned that it was for the rest of the rest of the school year. And 
And we had made a decision early on to just translate our intro GIS classes to ArcGIS Online, uh, simply because we had both Mac users and, and PC users, and uh, Windows users. And so we wanted to find that low impact, you know, we don't know the situations of the students with their, you know, with their technology, we were asking them, you know, in surveys, but, um, but thinking of those ways that, that we're not, um, that we are in that space of not reinventing a wheel, you know, there are existing, there's so many existing things out there that, that instructors can, can comb through. And this week, while I'm trying to do my own four classes, I'm also uh, helping other instructors with their classes in the transition to online. And, and that's been the spaces that, that they're most concerned about is, you know, we don't want to leave anybody behind. How do we progress forward and, and how do we simplify it? Because I think we all have to give each other a break and just say, don't beat yourself up. You know, it's, a, it's an odd semester or quarter and we're going to get done what we can get done and what we can't, um, you know, we have to let that go. I think that's a great point, Dr. White, about uh, keeping it simple to the point. One thing that comes to mind for me very quickly is the is Esri's geo inquiries. And Joseph can chime in and talk a little bit more about this, but they're very straightforward. ArcGIS Online, some of those exercises don't even require an organizational account. So they're they're very easy to be able to institute and flip right into your your uh, curriculum. And one other thing about it too, is that they're customizable. So that if you wanna dig deeper into something, you can always do that, uh, but this gets them started and it gets them on a pathway to be doing inquiry-based learning and problem solving and so forth. And it really allows those students to work independently too. Sure, Dr. Rich. Um... I think you're bringing up a good point. I think many of us have gone into instruction because we love creating our own resources. I still do. I, most, of the, most of the content that I teach, I actually created myself. However, that being said, I think Barbara is bringing up a good point here in the webinar, and that is if, you, if you've got a, a lesson and it, a component of that activity or lesson requires the students to, let's say, georeference a historical south a historical aerial photo or a or a topo map or something like that they get to that point in the lesson in times past right you had to actually put all those procedures into your lesson because there weren't any other resources but nowadays you don't have to do that so on the point of not reinventing the wheel you don't need to replicate all of that at that point you direct the students to and more importantly nowadays they have their own initiative to go to a youtube video to go to the ArcGIS Pro Help, et cetera, to find out how to do that component, and then they come back to your lesson. So I think the one of the points I wanted to bring up here is that you don't, A, have to have these mon monstrously huge, and I say this in part to myself because I have many, many long, long lessons, and I realize that over time, the students aren't reading your 40-page lesson, Joseph. They get to this point where they are stuck, and they go figure it out, and they come back to the lesson where you ask them to fill out these three questions, and then, you know, et cetera. And then the second thing is, as Rich was saying, these existing materials the learn.arcgis.com the geo inquiries uh, and other bodies of content uh, out at the geotech center for example as well the, uh, i get you know remote sensing lessons the, you 
there's a body of content. So if you've got a, a, a desire to have a agricultural land cover change over time activity in a course of yours, I think there's there's arguments to be made that if there's something that actually works that someone that you respect has created, use it. Focus your time on the things that you bring to the table that uh, that meet your course objectives, right? And rather than having to create, I still get this sense in geospatial education, this may be true outside of geospatial education as well, there's still far too much reinventing the wheel. So I'm really glad we're talking about this. And I think Rich and, and you, you all others are bringing up some good points here. Thanks. Along the li uh, lines of resources being already out there, there is uh, a huge collection of about 10 different model courses that the Geotech Center houses, and those are free. Uh, they're open to everyone. They have everything from the learning outcomes of a course through exercises, different types of assessments, videos, and the Geotech Center has spent literally years vetting these making sure that they were academically rigorous, that they were coinciding with the geospatial technology competency model with all of the skill sets uh, and embedding those into the learning as well. So hit geotechcenter.org, all one word, and you'll see that the model courses there are extremely helpful. And you can just pick and choose anything that you want in there. You don't have to take all of them. Uh, you don't have to download a single course. You can customize those and choose little pieces of them too. Yeah. And there's a couple of other locations that have courses as well. I love the Geotech Centers. Um, that's one of the places I send um, two-year and four-year folks to. And um, and what I'm what what I also have found are um, MIT's OpenCourseWare, they have some geospatial courses up there that they've got some shared content that you can send your students to, um, as well as the Open uh, Penn State, uh, Open Ed at Penn State, they have some geospatial resources as well that instructors um, and students may be able to, to access. Um, because it is about not creating a wheel, and yes, you do have to spend a little time looking through them, but you may find that that little time looking through them is a lot less time in the creation mode. One thing we've been doing at uh, at Stanford is is moving our model for creating content to GitHub, um, because we find that GitHub is a much friendlier place to share, collaborate, collaborate and update materials. So um, as much as possible, any new materials that we are creating, we're putting into our GitHub repo and with the intention that anyone who wants to use those materials can simply fork those materials and, and present them as their own uh, tutorial materials in their own context. Um. I like to add for the transition to go online um, a couple of things to to just get a sense of how easy it is. Um, for instance, we at the library at Yale Library, our leader Susan Gibbons, have done a tremendous job with his her executive team to connect with the Center for Teaching and Learning. I don't have the exact number, but I think around 45 of us have volunteered to help the Center for Teaching and Learning to um, assist faculty members to transfer from 
from their classes, their current uh, teaching materials into online. Um, there's also tons of Zoom uh, training sessions and I offered one for those who are uncomfortable with Zoom. You would think that Zoom is very intuitive, but when you take the lead, it might be a little bit stressful. And just asking questions like, how do I share the screen? It's confusing. You have the panel control on the bottom, and then when you share, boom, it flies to the top. And now where is it? Uh, so just helping each other to make the transition easier. It is important, reach out to those that you might think that are struggling because they are experts in one field, but they don't spend so much time with the technology. Um, another thing that I wanna share is that um, I normally uh, connect with researchers for about an hour consultation, and those hours might be the only time that I meet with them and then they take take off and they don't come back. So that is my one hour where I can talk to them about data management and other things. So if they come and they want to learn how to do georeferencing, I don't want to spend time teaching how to do georeferencing because when I was at Texas A&M, one of our grad students created a 10-minute video. It's a long one, but very detailed. And I was checking just, and um, that video has 335,000 views, and it's seven years old and it still is the top one that comes when, when I search for georeferencing. And like that, several of the videos have um, thousands of views, and they prove to be very useful. And guess what? We had no budget to do that. Some people say, oh yeah, I have 10,000 for video production. Well, we didn't. We had students, very committed students, and we did it together, just scripts and planning the video, and they came out okay. Uh, the same thing has happened at Yale. We didn't have time to offer so many workshops because we are very busy, and we went to create videos online. So the workshops that, uh, like Stace is, is mentioning, we decided to go ahead and, and produce one uh, for Esri software, for QGIS, intros and intermedia, and we offer those with a data package so students can go on their own time and, and learn without having to devote two hours coming to our center when they are super busy. And those are ideas for you to start thinking, what do I need to do to reduce my workload if I'm teaching online and I still need to do all these other tasks. Great information. Thank you, everyone. Uh, <clears throat> and I just want to circle back to just in case some of our K-12 educator friends um, find their way or, or frankly anyone that is not in geospatial technologies, but maybe you are an English professor or a history professor. Those geo inquiries, um, although they are set up to be an activity, each and every one of those contain a map that could be a tremendous resource for you to simply just use the map. They don't require a login. And um, <clears throat> maybe you'd just like for them to interact with the Civil War or you'd like for them to interact with the Great Gatsby. Um, so some great opportunities there if you haven't checked out that resource. Let's shift gears and talk about tech considerations for a second. So 
Um, I know Shannon mentioned earlier the Mac versus PC, and Miriam was just mentioning multiple versions of software. So ArcGIS and QGIS and the many different things and open versus licensing. Um, so Stace, I'd like to turn to you first uh, to talk about uh, some of these considerations as more people are moving to an online experience. Sure. So one of the one of the issues that we have at at the Stanford Geospatial Center is that we maintain a lab and a teaching classroom, and in those in that lab and and the teaching classroom, we maintain a set of uh, we have about 20 uh, Windows machines, and so we maintain ArcGIS, the full suite of Esri software, on those machines for people to use uh, at their convenience and. Uh, the machines that we maintain are pretty beefy. They have lots of RAM, big hard drives, uh, you know, uh, GPUs, and so and so people like working in our labs, and that's not available to them now. And so the problem is how to shift people from a model where they come and sit and co-locate with the support on equipment that they don't own, but is but is prepared for them to be able to do the things that they want. How do you shift that from from that model to a model where they have to be completely self-sufficient. Um, there are strategies for uh, for running uh, uh, Windows-based software on a Mac. You know, one of the one of the things that I notice every time I walk through a study area, a library at Stanford, I I pay attention to what students are doing, and I and I think probably about 80% of the students on our campus anyway are Mac users. And that makes it difficult to provide them with access to, to desktop software. So there are a couple of strategies that we use. First of all, ArcGIS Online um, has become a viable replacement for much of what you do in a desktop GIS. Uh, I've been, over the last year, uh, Jian Lang and the group that is uh, working on the, uh, on the analytics in ArcGIS Online has been really busy taking some of the most uh, robust tools that are available in ArcGIS Pro, ArcGIS Desktop, uh, things like network analysis, uh, you know, spatial joins, just most of the, the, the things that GIS users use on a regular basis in a desktop context, they're moving that into the ArcGIS Online platform to the point now where most of my introductory GIS workshops that I've traditionally taught on a desktop platform, I can now shift almost entirely uh, to ArcGIS Online. I think the only thing that I can't do now in ArcGIS Online for most of my introductory materials, um, the only thing I can't do in, in AGO is georeferencing uh, and getting a georeferenced map onto AGO, but I can get an, uh, a georeferenced map onto AGO. Uh, I just can't georeference it. And that's really the one thing I have to do in a desktop platform. Uh, and then I can push it to AGO. Alternatives include um, uh, QGIS. QGIS is a fantastic open source desktop GIS application. Um, and uh, it is about 10 years old. It's not nearly as mature as the as the Esri products. Esri just had their 50th anniversary. And so uh, so their software products are extremely mature. For, for being a, about a 10-year-old uh, desktop platform, QGIS is actually really mature and, and presents a, a pretty effective uh, desktop GIS alternative to, uh, to Esri's uh, products. 
particularly for people who are working on a Mac or or even in Linux. And so uh, I'm a Mac user, and I find now that about 95% of what I do uh, in terms of geospatial data carpentry tasks, I will do in QGIS because it's just much easier to spin up QGIS on my Mac than to start a virtual machine and and uh, and split my RAM and all of those things. That said, you can do that. You can run uh, Esri products, ArcGIS uh, Pro and ArcGIS Desktop in virtualization software, platforms like Parallels. Um, uh, in fact, for uh, for ArcGIS Pro, Parallels, I believe, is the only virtual uh, virtualization platform that is effective because it's the only one that currently supports the DirectX drivers that ArcGIS Pro requires for uh, for its graphics. Um, ArcGI uh, ArcGIS Desktop runs pretty great on any VM software. So if you can get hold of the Windows uh, uh, operating system, then you can uh, you can get VMware uh, Desktop. You can get VirtualBox. There are a couple of open source uh, alternatives um, to Parallels and the and the proprietary packages that you can run ArcMap in pretty effectively. Um, the other thing is, uh, and this is increasingly available to GIS users these days, is is online platforms, browser-based platforms. Um, a few years ago, I think it was probably in uh, around 2010, uh, the, a book called The Fourth Paradigm came out, and there uh, there's an introductory um, uh, uh, paper in that book, uh, and and one of the points that the uh, that the author makes in that introduction is that the questions that we're asking of of spatial data and of geographic software have become so large, the scale at which we want to ask questions uh, has become so large that it's no longer practical for us to bring the data down to the question, that is to bring the analysis to a desktop uh, platform. And it is now necessary for us, uh, because of the scale of the questions we want to ask and the amount of data that we want to deal with, it's now necessary for us to push those questions to the cloud. Um, to actually put the questions in the data rather than bring the data to the questions. And platforms like ArcGIS Online, um, uh, Google Earth Engine, uh, uh, DavidRumsey.com, the, the Planet.com interface for accessing their data, um, other platforms like Simply Analytics, um, these are all platforms that are entirely cloud-based and, uh, and provide you with access to incredibly large corpuses of data uh, within a browser with no software installation in most cases. Um, you simply open up a web page and get to work. And I think one of the most uh, um, uh, amazing examples of this is actually Google Earth Engine. Uh, we, we did the first Google Earth Engine Summit in 2013 at Yale when I was there. And the first time I saw Dave Tao pull up Google Earth Engine in a browser, and then pull up the entire Landsat collection for the last year uh, for, the, for for all of North America, and then switch from a visible uh, um, uh, visualization of the Landsat imagery to a false color 432 uh, visualization of the imagery for the entire continent. I thought, well, this just changes everything because <laughs> I've been I've been spending eight hours, you know, prepping 
a, a couple of Landsat images for the last decade of my life every time I want to work with satellite imagery. And that's just all gone now. Now I just go into a browser and I call what I want to work with and I begin working with it immediately. And so, um, and so I think another strategy that we should be looking at is actually leveraging these platforms that are available to us to do these things at scale in the cloud. Um, there are, are platforms like Cardo, uh, which provides you with a PostgreSQL and PostGIS uh, uh, database in the cloud uh, with a really beautiful renderer um, and some, uh, you know, they're, they're very dashboard oriented now, but you can still go in there and you can just do straight SQL queries all day long if you want in their platform and they have very generous uh, uh, free tiers um, to their uh, to their uh, uh, subscription levels and so a lot of what we need to do is start thinking about what are our opportunities to to move users off of their machines and onto cloud infrastructure that we all share and that we all have access to um, another thing I think is important is is particularly for instructors and people who are trying to support geospatial uh, in the cloud and and are are you know caught up in this in this quarantine is to think about this quarantine also as a professional development opportunity um, and and uh, you know one of the one of the most uh, important things you can do for your patrons and your users the people who you, who you're trying to serve is learn something new to pass on to them you know, take the time to take uh, Fast AI's uh, uh, workshop um, introduction to machine learning. Uh, take the time to go through Google Earth Engine's uh, uh, Google Earth Engine 101 tutorials and learn how to use the code editor. Um, take the time to go to the carpentries.org and look through their selection of software and data carpentries workshop on doing spatial data analysis in Python and R and things like that. Um, take the time to go look at Mapbox's RoboSat package and, and what you can do out of the box with satellite imagery and machine learning. Um, all of these things are, uh, you know, the, these are free resources that you can begin making use of immediately and, uh, and then pass on to your users. Um, this is, you know, a large part of, of what I think of as my job is simply learning what the new big thing is going to be and making sure that I'm in a position to support that new big thing because that new big thing is what my students and faculty and staff at Stanford are going to be wanting to know about and wanting to use in their own research and teaching. I really appreciate that last comment, but I also am aware of a lot of people who are really in crisis mode. Um, I, I agree with the professional development. I actually just put a couple of pens on some notes that I was taking of things that you mentioned that I want to look at in the summer once, <laughs> once things sort of of move out but but one of the things that I thought of was what if I had my students investigate some of these online options that you just mentioned because I think that that um, that gets into their natural curiosity and they're doing some of the the pre-work for me in looking at you know what are these opportunities that are out there and what are the pros what are the cons and turning that into a, a course assignment that benefits them and benefits other classmates as well as you, the instructor. I think sometimes um, we as instructors feel like we have to be in control 
and that's not true. We we often need to depend on our students to to bring the curiosity to the table and push us a little bit outside of a box that we may have created for ourselves or for our classes. Um, and while I, I know I said I don't want to push anybody towards learning new technologies during this time, I this morning had an email exchange with one of my students who only has a Mac and um, does not have parallels or other VMware or access to Windows. And I, I posed a question, you know, are, are you willing to uh, take on the learning of, of QGIS with me on the side uh, to help you? And there are so many resources that are out there. Um, and I think that a lot of students, given the time that they're now at home and not with their friends, they may be looking for those new things to learn. Um, in, in a different way than than maybe the structure of my class had had not provided um, previously. Shannon, I think that's a great point, and uh, and and one of the differences. So, uh, you know, you're thinking of of this in terms of of classroom teaching, uh, which is you know there there's a difference between uh, say for instance the way I support our patrons. We're really sort of a a geospatial skunk works. We're more of a consulting firm that doesn't charge uh, because we're in the library. And most of what I do is sitting down with a researcher, listening to their uh, to their research questions, finding the spatial question, and then helping them design uh, a workflow that answers that spatial question. And so often what I'm doing is putting together uh, small bite-sized instruction uh, pieces for uh, for that patron to to do the one thing or two things that they need to do in terms of spatial data carpentry to get back in, uh, and then they get back to their research and in, in the way that they're used to doing it. Um, for you, I think that makes a lot of sense to assign these uh, these sort of uh, you know reconnaissance pieces to students. That sounds like a perfect uh, example of a classroom activity um, that would. First of all, help you learn about these resources, and second of all, uh, engage your students with something that's maybe bleeding edge and provides them with uh, with motivation uh, beyond just the the learning motivation. They, you know, um, students love to be the first to 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 touch something, to do something, to to work with a package, um, and to tell their their uh, fellow students about it. Um, and so I find. Uh, um, when I introduce students to something in the context of a workshop or a consultation, I will often find uh, uh, that later on, weeks later, other students will come to me asking about these resources because they heard from from their friends about them. At, at that age and stage of development of our college students and knowing that they range from, like, in my program, I have a a person who is returned to school after having a full career um, all the way through freshmen, um, that this is their first year away from home, which has returned them to home early. Um, and, and thinking of those, those learning circumstances and those developmental pieces where, you know, my seniors are upset that they're not going to see their friends in the same way and wind down their semester towards a, a graduation ceremony that is still up in the air. And that reality, um, I'd like to help them kind of think about how they can build themselves as professionals, because that's part of what we do in education, right? We we help our students reach that point where they can um, they can learn to learn, 
And this is the perfect opportunity for that um, and thinking about how we can, we can facilitate their own personal learning plans um, for the rest mm -hmm. of the semester in, in their, our classrooms, in our geospatial classrooms, help them. If, if we're stressed out about it, let's have a conversation about it and say, you know, what do we, what do I know about? What do you know about? And what can we co-create together as we end out the semester? And, you know, build for the freshmen more resources and opportunities. And for our graduating seniors, looking at, at how they can complement many different things onto their resume and into their new work life or their new grad school opportunities. Uh, Shannon, I'd like to add also, Stace mentioned the power of web mapping and that you can do almost everything with the RGS online and other online um, platforms. Um, we shouldn't forget that the, the main idea is to, to bring special literacy to our students for decision making and perhaps by the time that they graduate and they they take their first or, or second job, the, the desktop uh, would be so different. So not having desktop this semester, I don't see that as like the worst case scenario. Uh, and maybe being a little creative on how to overcome that for a few weeks or perhaps the entire semester. I heard a faculty member who's pairing students who have, one has desktop and the other student does not have the desktop. So just let's not uh, get too caught up in, in the fact that they don't have the desktop, but what do we need them to learn? And I think there's mm. many things that they can do, even if somebody else runs the, the geocoding or whatever uh, tool you are using that cannot be done on online because it requires credits or whatever. And also reach out to those vendors and perhaps they would open opportunities for more credits or less less restrictions on the platform during these days. And, and those, Miriam, you make a great point. You know, why not partner someone who has um, a Mac and someone who has a Windows machine and able to run whatever software, you know, that you're using in your class, whether it's online or or not, but pair them up, um, see what they can discover and what they can create together. Um, it, it give them the, the opportunities. Well, thank you, everyone. Uh, man, those, these are all wonderful things to talk about, and it's making me think we need a, a session two at some point. Uh, <laughs> But I know that um, I don't want to keep everyone too long today, so um, I'm going to go ahead and move along to resources and look. Thinking, and we've already talked about so many. And I also want to remind everyone that all these links and things that uh, that people are mentioning that is all going to be on the page with the recording. So um, turn to that page for the wealth of information that we. Um, are going to share here. So let's talk about resources and I'm going to start with Joseph. Um, he has got some things to share with us to start with and show off a thing or two. Thanks. Indeed, Joseph. I'll keep it brief, I promise. Uh, but just touching on some of these excellent comments, uh, I love what Stace said about bringing the problem to the data rather than the data to the problem. I think that's mm -hmm. a big 
paradigm shift, uh, but an important one. Um, and just to add to his excellent uh, resource comments, uh, you know, in the past it was, okay, you've got to assemble a whole bunch of DEMs from the USGS and download all those individual tiles and then make your slope and aspect. And then, you know, several hours later, then you actually use that data to design your ski area or look at your soil moisture in on different slopes. But nowadays the DEMs are a service, right? They're a, they're a data service. And so um, just to, to put up, uh, you know, another uh, resource out there uh, to, to capitalize on uh, Stace's excellent point. The, the, another one that I'd just like to mention um, in that whole vein of, of learning something, you know, that's maybe outside the box, but uh, going to be very important down the road, and that is Jupyter Notebooks inside ArcGIS Pro. That is going to open uh, some, I think, departmental eyes in terms of computer science that we haven't seen before. So I just wanted to mention those two things. Yeah, in terms of resources, um, we do have this landing page on coronavirus for G the GIS community out on the ESRI GeoNet site. And we also have a education-focused zone. Now in that education-focused zone, we have, for example, some office hours. Hopefully you're seeing that right here. And we've got that to support the educational community. We're having two office hours a week, virtual office hours, obviously, but uh, as resource for people that have questions about, for example, the stuff that we've talked about here on the webinar today. Uh, you know, for example, uh, virtualizing versus uh, moving some content to SaaS software as a service solutions. We've got several blog posts that some colleagues and I have written over the last uh, days. It's been a very busy week, but it definitely shows that people are interested in in the, all the topics that we talked about today, resources and teaching online and how to teach GIS online. If you want to focus on, for example, how to make web maps and apps about the actual health crisis right now, I've got this posting on teaching and learning about the coronavirus with maps, dashboards, and infographics. So simple things that you can do, but again, um, important in light of what's going on right now. In terms of other resources, I, and also touching on our not reinventing the wheel, we did mention this earlier, but the Learn ArcGIS site with, with lessons. And like Rich was saying with the uh, geo inquiries, you can actually take these and then extend them. And so, uh, you know, you're, you're gonna get a set of data, you might have an online map that you're, you're working with, but you being the creative instructors listening to this, uh, I am fully confident that you would be able to, if you wanted to take a component of this and then use it inside another lesson or just use them as is, that's fine too. In terms of content, I, I have this blog that a colleague and I started after we wrote this book called The GIS Guide to Public Domain Data. And I know people listening to this are not in, in the vein of thinking data is the super most boring topic in the world. I mean, we are all data geeks on this call, but um, it, it sounds really dry, but I have things in there like, for example, the, the societal issues, like the story a couple weeks ago about how, how someone took a, a red wagon and toted a bunch of smartphones around a city and then caused Google Maps to, uh, rightly so, it, that's a traffic jam. So there are societal issues and I use that uh, that blog, those some of those essays in there as content pieces for students to reflect on, to read and reflect on. Also the body of knowledge from the UCGIS is a good set of content. Again, you don't need to recreate 
uh, what's data capture, what is analysis. Uh, these, you know, speaking of vetted resources, these are these fall into that category. So Diana Stewart Sinton and I just, for example, wrote a chapter on GIS education and training. But there are hundreds of other chapters in here that I think are a good resource. Another resource that I use is uh, my own podcasts on thinking spatially. So I've got one on counting the population, kind of appropriate for the census year and supply chain management and so on. Geography is revolutionary. So I use those as well. I also have a lot of GIS and geospatial and geography, earth science, environmental science related videos. So I've got a new one on the Our Earth channel on, on uh, ethics, teaching ethics and GIS. So that's another resource that I use. And I'll just cut it off there. Those are some, again, not the end all be all, looking forward to hearing your comments and uh, additional things that you might want to add. Thanks. Stace has got a resource to share related to the Google Earth Engine, right, Stace? While Stace there is bringing that up, um, one of the things that I have as a suggestion for folks who are looking at their final month and a half of courses is um, if their university has access to the um, or training.esri.com, that particular uh, site has some really nice modules that you can assign to students or students can select. I used them in a class last semester where I had them develop their own learning plan. There are actually other learning plans that are up there for educators. And um, so you can creatively borrow from, from other folks. And I really would like to emphasize that creative borrowing at this point in the game. Yeah. All right, um, hopefully you can all see Earthworks. Uh, I just wanted to talk yep. really quickly about a couple of the data sources that I turn to. Uh, Earthworks is our Stanford branded version of GeoBlacklight, which is a data discovery platform for geospatial data. Um, and if you type in here, I'm just going to go with my favorite data set, which is my clowns data set. Um, so if I type in clowns into our single search box, um, we should, if, uh, if Earthworks is not being hammered by the world right now, um, get a landing page, a search. Um, there we go. All right, it's, it's coming well in. There. Yeah. And uh, and so if I go here to this landing page, I can see uh, I have a couple of options. First of all, um, we expose all of the data so you can examine it in the on the landing page here. And so I can zoom in. I can take a look at the attributes to make sure that they uh, meet my needs. And then I can download the original shape file or several derivatives here. We also make the web services available if you want to use those in an online platform. Um, but what I actually wanted to show you and point out here is that Earthworks is federated and uh, we index about 20 different institutions data. So you can see that we have tens of thousands of data sets from different institutions, almost 70,000 data sets. And if we come down here to access and look at what's publicly available, you can see there's nearly 50,000 data sets that are publicly available. So this is not just a resource uh, for Stanford uh, patrons. This is a resource for anyone to go and download geospatial data sets from, uh, uh, from authoritative sources. Uh, for raster data, um, even when I'm not using Google Earth Engine, I find that the Google Earth Engine data catalog is one of the best data catalogs for, uh, for pixel-based Earth observation data uh, available. 
And even if I'm not gonna analyze the data in Google Earth Engine, often what I'll do here is if I'm looking for a particular type of data, weather data, atmospheric data, um, elevation data, and so on, um, I will come to Google Earth Engine to see what's available in the public domain. Uh, and then uh, usually you can find, you know, if you find a data set that you're interested in using, um, there are ways to get it out of Google Earth Engine, but you can also just simply do a Google search to find uh, where you can access that data um, to bring it down to your machine locally. Uh, lately, uh, Humanitarian Data Exchange has been a go-to for lots of uh, uh, great authoritative data, particularly on uh, disaster relief and first response in disaster situations. You can see that the Humanitarian Data Exchange has the uh, the now ubiquitous Esri uh, uh, infographic of the COVID-19 outbreak on the top of their COVID outbreak resource page, but they also are making available uh, the data sets behind uh, um, that dashboard uh, for many of the countries that are collecting data. So this becomes a clearinghouse often for um, organizations like Medisans Sans Frontiers and uh, and uh, Missing Maps and the uh, Red Cross and other organizations. Um, so I find uh, these days for vector data and infor uh, information about situational awareness in a particular uh, um, disaster event, HDX is actually a really great uh, authoritative resource. And, uh, and then finally, I wanted to point out that um, Often, one of the problems that we have in research is that the data we're interested in obtaining uh, doesn't exist for the places that we're interested in studying. So, um, as a research university, a lot of our, our researchers are interested in working in the Global South, uh, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southern uh, Asia, places like that, South America, places where there is not a commercial motivation to map at a very high resolution. And that's where OpenStreetMap comes in. OpenStreetMap is a map of the world. Lots of people will be familiar with it as a base map uh, that's available in uh, in the Esri products, ArcGIS Pro and Desktop and ArcGIS Online. Um, but uh, OpenStreetMap is also a database uh, that is available for you to make use of. And so you can come here into um, uh, what's called the Overpass Turbo and uh, you can run queries on data sets and you can then download those data sets, um, export them to GeoJSON, uh, and, uh, and then those can be converted into something you can use in ArcGIS Online and so on. Um, so these are a couple of the uh, uh, data sources that we turn to first for looking for data sets uh, for researchers to use uh, at Stanford. Um, obviously, Earthworks is our go-to because that's all curated data and provided by um, uh, data librarians at universities across uh, across the world now. Mm -hmm. uh, the one last thing I wanted to show was uh, this resource, which is one of the best resources for QGIS tutorials. Um, this is a website that is maintained by Ujaval Gandhi. He is a uh, he's a Google employee in India and. Um, and over the course of the last uh, couple of months, he has updated this entire corpus of QGIS tutorials and tips to the new QGIS 3 version. 
Um, and this is my go-to for QGIS uh, task-based tutorials. If you need to do something in a GIS platform, in a desktop GIS, like geo-referencing a map or making a simple, uh, a simple print map or working with projections, things of that sort, uh, this is a fantastic resource, particularly for people who are working on Mac or Linux. Um, uh, because the QGIS platform runs on those. Um, and Ujival is uh, uh, also available on Twitter. He is incredibly responsive if you get in touch with him about his tutorials uh, and loves to see that people are using them. So he's, uh, he's available on Twitter to uh, get in touch with if you have questions about his tutorials in particular. Uh, but we use these tutorials and workshops at Stanford all the time. Thank you, Stace. Um, if at this point someone is overwhelmed, I just mm -hmm. want to bring um, the conversation back to what Rich said at the beginning about empathy. Um, I want everybody know that uh, we are here to help and there's Absolutely. many GIS educators that are always willing to help. I always tell people how I have learned through my peers across the nation and I am so grateful that um, I've been trying to do kind of a paying forward but I think I'm gonna die and I won't be able to pay everything that I have received <laughs> from my peers so at this point what I want to say is that please 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 if you're feeling overwhelmed just reach out to us um, I would be more than happy uh, to just talk about your struggles. Um, I am one who came to Texas A&M and faculty members wouldn't want to take me even for auditing their class. So somehow a lot of people helped me throughout this journey and I would be more than happy to tell you shortcuts is what I love to share. Shortcuts, don't, don't get uh, worried about big words we can make the words smaller together. So just uh, keep that in mind and really uh, please reach out and I'd, I'd be happy to talk about your plans for teaching. That's a great point, uh, um, Miriam. And, and I just want to reiterate that, you know, one of, the, one of the nicest things anybody ever said about me uh, was that I was pathologically uh, um, inclined to help and <laughs> And I find that that is sort of a quality of geo people in general, particularly yes. people working in the university and library context. And so, uh, and, and so, and so Miriam is absolutely right. Now, uh, you know, yeah. um, if, if any of you have ever engaged me in a one-on-one -on -one conversation called for advice or anything, you know, that, you, that I will talk about this stuff until your ears bleed. And, uh, and that often, you know, asking me for advice is dangerous because what you're doing is turning on the fire hydrant of, of advice. Um, and so, uh, so you should reach out to people if you feel overwhelmed, if you can't figure out how to handle something, if you've got a question from a faculty member, from a patron that, that you just don't have the, the technical expertise to, to field, um, you have colleagues out there that, that do and, and we're available to you. Um, uh, to help you uh, to help you um, get through this. I mean, we're we're all sitting here in our in our in our bedrooms now at, at our uh, remote workstations, uh, waiting for work to come to us. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and so 
whether that work comes from my Stanford patrons or from my my fellow GIS support people out at, at other universities, I'm I'm agnostic, um, and and so I I welcome any questions, any any uh, um, you know requests for assistance uh, that anyone yeah. out there has. So on that note, Stace, um, Shannon, maybe you could kick off our last little topic here um, to talk about tips and tricks. And I know one thing that I have seen pass by on our chat, um, I know our audience would love to be in on what's happening on the background chat here, the back channel. Uh, but I promise all the great nuggets we will be sharing with you on the page. But one of those things I, I was, I thought, you know, why aren't more of us doing this and maybe asking another professor, instructor, friend um, to help us teach whatever the item is um, that maybe you aren't an expert in or you don't love the resource that you found. But, hey, I know that Stace could chime in on some, a, a cool remote sensing uh, moment for a few minutes with my students. Wouldn't that be great? So, Shan, why don't you uh, lead us off and talk, start talking about tips and tricks and maybe some questions that um, you know are coming up in your experiences now? So, a lot of it's been covered um, thus far. I think the, there's a lot of anxiety for instructors around this move to online. And like I said, keeping things simple um, is better than, um, than trying to make it super complex for yourself or your students. Um, in addition to that, I think you have to reach out to your community. Um, you have to model to, to your students what is a best practice. And a best practice during a time in which we have um, a lot of changing and moving parts is to reach out to colleagues and um, and find out what they're doing. Uh, it's funny because we were talking on the back channel and, and for the past couple of days, I, I think that I really want to establish like a, a mappy hour where we we as GIS instructors across the board, K-12, um, community college, four-year uh, university online, it doesn't matter. We're all educators trying to help students understand um, how spatial data works, how um, GIS can be used in multiple platforms to, to change the world. And we're seeing it in maps daily. And in that, um, I, I think that we have to come together. We have to um, make a space where we're willing to accept help, ask for help, um, and give ourselves a break. Um, we we have to we have to realize that it is just a different situation. Um, alongside that is um, is finding the thing that sparks the fun. You know, we we've talked a lot of serious topics today, but but what what could be fun? as your, you know, as your students are sitting there and they're expected to do an assignment, um, what are you going to have them do that, that helps them learn something, but gets to be creative in a way that maybe you haven't been able to be creative previously. Um, the other thing is, is, you know, we talk about leaning on people 
Have you also thought about who, who that person is that can help step in if you yourself get sick? Um, and I, I don't want to go down that dark path, but you know, if, if you are sick, what are the ways that you've set up your course to continue? Um, and what are the ways that you've made sure that someone else could help you and step in, um, in that? Um, and, and I think that's pretty important to consider. Um, I, I think the other thing that is to take a look at the links that all of us have collectively pulled together um, and are sharing uh, inside of the, the space that this will be posted because we, us coming together, we feed off of each other. That, that goes back to the chat. Um, you know, when you start to share things, it triggers someone else thinking, oh yeah, that, how about this? And how about this? We could go on for three hours sharing. Um, but get out there and, you know, every so often take a break, look at some social media and see what, you know, what other educators are sharing um, or what you can do to help another educator. I'm going to kind of leave it there because we've covered a lot of the technical aspects. Um, we've covered a lot of the resources that are available out there. Um, but just, you know, keep calm and map on. Thanks. has got another something to share with us. All right. I just really quickly this. So this is a little thing that I'm excited about that I've been playing with. And this is a, um, this is actually a trick. Uh, and this software that I'm playing with is called OBS. And I don't know if you can see me, um, uh -huh. but uh, on the screen in the camera is cool. Um, so it's open broadcast software studio. It's free. It runs on Windows, Mac and Linux. And what it allows you to do is control several streams of information and push those out either to a video, a recording, or to a live stream. So if anyone's interested in doing live streaming of workshops, this is a way that you can take. So for instance, I'm controlling several cameras here. You can see I've got a camera there that's coming from the side. And then behind me on this side over here, I've got a green screen. And so you can see that this camera right here is taking out my background. Um, I don't have my lights set up, so it's not perfect quality right now. But um, but then this camera is from the front, and so you can you can control you know as many cameras as you want. You can control a microphone input. Um, but then the other thing that's really nice is you can have uh, a remote screen. So I've got several screens set up here, and I can be sitting here doing my tutorial and going through you know ArcGIS online and zooming in and demoing the map live and streaming this out live um, through OBS. So this is something that uh, that we're just starting to experiment with at SGC, and you're gonna see some SGC content coming out in the next probably week or two uh, that'll be making use of OBS to create uh, to create live, both live and pre-recorded workshop materials for uh, for Stanford users and anyone who wants to who wants to use them. I, I was looking at that and for me it makes me drool and I think for other instructors it might cause them a panic of the complexity and so remembering that there are simple ways um, a to find existing resources don't recreate the wheel but if you have a particular demo that you use in your course and you want to do it you know open up zoom open up panopto in blackboard open up something very simplistic and record yourself it doesn't have to be perfect it just has to be and it right. has to be helpful um, mm. and and that's one of the things that um, i think is 
is where people start getting overwhelmed is all the options and possibilities. And I have to admit, this is me as well. Um, and it, at some point you have to, you know, you have to get out there and you have to do what's best for your students. And if that is to use someone else's video, use someone else's video. If it's to use someone else's resources, use someone else's resources. Um, mm -hmm. There is no shame in, in sharing and creatively borrowing and, um, and really making this a way to demonstrate to our students what, what it is to be a collaborative citizen of the world. So true. And especially in GIS, I mean, this is the way workflows and offices work, right? People don't work in silos in GIS. It's always collaborative. Um, so I want to remind everyone that we are continue to share things um, out beyond this event. So keep an eye over on a few hashtags that we know perhaps already exist, but um, want to encourage you to um, keep an eye on those. A simple hashtag GIS, hashtag GIS chat, hashtag teaching online. Um, and I think maybe, uh, Shannon, we should look out for uh, hashtag mappy hour um, <laughs> coming up soon. That would be great. Um, and Miriam and I have been talking about the hashtag, um, hashtag SOS teach GIS, um, just in case you need some help. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we encourage you to invite, find guest, guest uh, speakers to teach uh, a specific um, objective for your class if you are um, not able to, to produce the, the lesson for the next class. Excellent. Well, thank you to my talented friends here from the geospatial community. Um, this idea was literally hatched on Monday and here we are on Friday and we have a collection of resources and you now as the audience have a collection of folks that are ready to help you. So we hope that you will reach out to them. All the information will be on uh, the webpage over at directionsmag.com. You should be able to access that from the homepage. Thanks everybody. We hope that you are safe and healthy and uh, we'll reach out to a geospatial friend for the help that you need. On behalf of all of the panel here today, as well as Directions Magazine, we want to thank all the GIS geeks, healthcare workers, and the many people working to keep all of us safe.